0: This is Lee Habib, and you're listening to the sound of Mahalia Jackson's voice, singing How I Got Over, live at the March on Washington, and today we're going to dive deep into the life of Reverend Martin Luther King. I'm just not calling him doctor. I refuse to. He had a doctor, by the way, a divinity, which is why I must call him a reverend, out of respect. And joining us for the hour, as always, when we talk about America's great leaders, and that's everything from sports to business. We did Walt Disney with this man. We did John Wooden with this man. We're going to do all the great leaders. He's written so many great leadership books. Joining us is Pat Williams, the co-founder and senior vice president of the Orlando Magic and the author of 80 books on leadership, including the book 21 Great Leaders, Learn Their Lessons, Improve Your Influence, And one of those leaders in that book is the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. I highly recommend picking it up and learning from one of the best American leadership writers and profilers. Pat, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. Good to plug in here. And anytime you get to talk about Martin Luther King, Jr., it's always a a very meaningful time.
0: Well, you know, Pat, he led a nation and he led a nation that didn't necessarily want to be led. And I think that's always the great challenge in a man's life as a leader, is taking people somewhere they might not want to go. Talk about that even before we start.
1: Well, and and the thing that's so remarkable about Reverend King is he did it as a very young man. Uh, He was in his 20s. Listen, uh, he died at age 39. Think about that for a minute. So he was doing uh, these remarkable things with great courage as, as a very young man in his 20s. So we've got a marvelous uh, period of time ahead here as we talk about him and look at him and evaluate him as a leader. And most importantly, what can we learn from the life of Reverend King? So thanks for plugging me in here.
0: Oh, you bet. And you know, Pat, let's let's start in the middle, not at the beginning. Let's start with you, a young white man and in 1963, you were at Reverend King's famous March on Washington, where he delivered the just remarkable, and I think one of the great pieces of American rhetoric, right up there with the Gettysburg Address, the I Have a Dream speech. And what brought you there, Pat? And tell us about that day.
1: Well, I had uh, spent that summer uh, playing baseball in the Philly system uh, in Miami, Florida, in, uh, the summer of 1963 and uh, the season was over, and I was uh, heading back up from Miami driving. Uh, I talked to my family. My mother uh, explained to me that there was this event in Washington. She was going to be there with my two sisters, and she suggested that I stop in Washington as I was heading to my home in Wilmington, Delaware. I'd been playing ball all summer and wasn't following the news, really. I was immersed in another world, but I agreed to do that, and so I got to Washington and found my, my family, and uh, there we were. I mean, I never will forget it, <clears throat> uh, standing there uh, and then sitting on a hot summer day with, oh gosh, just masses of people. And we sat through the ceremony and heard the different speakers, and, and then uh, Dr. King got up to speak. Uh, And uh, we were kind of catty-corner to the stage. But it was a memorable moment uh, as he electrified that crowd. And uh, I was 23 years old, little realizing that I was there uh, uh, taking in a big piece of American history.
0: Indeed. And, you know, in the end, Pat, it wasn't about just one speech. This This was a man who could not only speak, but he could follow up on that speech until the end, and he could get it done, the things he thought America needed to get done, and the wounds and and scars and sins uh, that needed to be healed. In our time together, Pat, what I'd like to do is cover the incredible wisdom from your book that draws from Martin King's life, Reverend King's life, about how we can all communicate effectively as leaders. That's what I think is so interesting about our conversations, is what we learn from Walt Disney, what we learn from 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 John Wooden and how we can apply it to our own lives. So let's start with one of the most basic but powerful points you make in the book. And I'm going to quote from it, and then I'd love your comment. An uncommunicated vision accomplishes nothing, but a vision expressed by a skilled communicator can change the world. King sure did that, didn't he, Pat?
1: Well, there's no question. Uh, leadership, I have learned, generally gravitates Uh, to the man or woman who can talk. That is generally who we elect to office. That's generally who gets to lead uh, the campaign. It's generally who becomes the CEO of 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 the company. So I urge leaders at every level, really work hard at your communication skills. Join Toastmasters. Take that Dale Carnegie speaking course. Uh, join the National Speakers Association, really work at it, uh, because when they appointed uh, down in <clears throat> Montgomery, Alabama, uh, after Rosa Parks had been arrested and uh, the movement started, they appointed Dr. King to, to lead it. And he was a young man, maybe of, maybe 26 years old. But even then, uh, he could move people into that uh, by his verbal ability. I'm not saying that we can all be a Dr. King as far as speaking skills, but we can all improve and we can all get better if we'll really work at it.
0: And, you know, the other part of this, A, A, you need the communication skills. You know, we had just done Ronald Reagan's farewell address, and he said something, of course, he was always humble, and he said, I wasn't a great communicator. I was a communicator of great ideas. And I think, of course, again, self-effacing to the end was the great communicator, but a great communicator not communicating a great vision can in the end be a very dangerous thing. I mean, Hitler was a great communicator, Pat.
1: Listen, maybe the greatest. You know, I've studied Hitler, and I'm, I continue to study him in, in, uh, in depth uh, because he is a fascinating leader, and uh, he, he was not very talented. You know, the, he was not super gifted. In fact, uh, he, he didn't have a whole lot of uh, talent at all except... His ability to to move crowds and literally uh, just overwhelm them with his speaking skills. No
0: doubt. Let's hold that thought, Pat, because we're going into a break. When we come back, we'll pick up with bad visions and good visions, communication and leadership. This is Lee Habib, and today, Reverend Martin Luther King for the show. We'll be back right after this.
2: must the cannonballs fly I was born by the river in a
0: This is Lee Habib, and you're listening to that lonesome, aching, but ultimately hopeful voice of the great Sam Cooke, who was writing about a time and a place, but also, is there ever a time this song doesn't move us? And he wrote this. And for the hour, we're talking about Reverend Martin Luther King, and joining us for this hour as we examine the leadership dimension. Of King's life. We're going to be attacking his spiritual dimension with some speeches you have never heard before in the following hour. And that's Pat Williams, who's joining us as always when we talk about leadership. He's the co founder and senior vice president of the Orlando Magic and the author of over 80 books, 80 books on leadership, something obviously he takes seriously, including the book 21 Great Leaders Learn Their Lessons, Improve Your Influence and i wanted to read a quote from martin luther king and get your your uh your answer pat and then tie maybe it in back to the hitler conversation we just dropped off with he said quote ultimately a genuine leader is not a searcher for consensus but a molder of consensus i would rather be a man of conviction than a man of conformity talk
1: about that pat well he uh <clears throat> had a quality that allowed him to do that and the quality uh... is called courage uh... he was uh, elected really and appointed uh... to lead the whole civil rights movement as a very young man and uh... as a result as you study uh, many of those marches uh... there was dr king out front leading them facing the snarling police dogs and the billy clubs and the fire hoses that would rip bark off of a tree from a hundred feet away, uh, and and always was the threat of of being shot. Uh, those were violent times in American history. We uh, this this generation, the young, youngsters today, have no no awareness that blacks and whites uh, didn't mingle. Two separate worlds. Yep and and uh, it was violent and Dr. King didn't shy. Listen, he uh he had his share of attacks and he knew he knew that uh being as open as that, you know, he didn't hide, he didn't have security. I mean, he could have been shot any time. He knew that. Yep. But but courage is what I I think of when I think of him and uh and all of those civil rights leaders, uh, they had enormous courage to do what they did.
0: No doubt. And you know, Pat, it wasn't just the South. I mean, look, I'm a product of the North. And if you've ever seen the great movie, A Bronx Tale, which is Robert De Niro and Chaz Parmenteri, this was true of so many northern cities. There was this line in the city where there were whites and on the other side there were blacks. And in that particular movie, it's the Bronx. And there's the white Italian neighborhood. There's the black neighborhood. Step on side the other, either race. And a world of hurtin' was coming your way. This was an American problem, Pat. I think everybody tries to say it was a Southern There's no
1: problem. There's question. Uh, Lee, there was, there was violence in Los Angeles and Chicago, Detroit. Uh, Newark. Philadelphia, New York, absolutely. We tend to think that uh, the South is where all the problems were. And they were enormous. But uh, it, was a, it was a national problem two different worlds, uh, the black world and the white world, and uh, Dr. King led the the push for equality. Uh, He made that incredible statement that he longed for the day when his children, his four little children, would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And we have made an enormous amount of progress, Lee, there's still a long way to go. But uh, I think Dr. King would be pleased with much of the progress we've made.
0: No, I, I couldn't agree more, Pat. I want to play you this clip uh, that we have from his I Have a Dream speech and talk about the lesson you took away from it in your book. Let's hear it.
3: How long, not long, yes, sir. because no lie can live forever. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. How long, not long, How long? Yes, because you shall reap.
0: I'm sorry, I mischaracterized that. That was from the how long, how long speech, Pat. Um, but what a, what a remarkable thing to say. No lie can live forever. Uh, talk about that, if you could.
1: Well, that, that's his ability to, to, to convey that message. Uh, I do want to go back, Lee, to the I Have a Dream speech uh... he had worked hard on his talk uh... in fact the night before at the willard hotel in washington he was polishing up his speech and he was the last speaker of the day uh... that day was coming to a close and it had been a long day people were really tired and hot uh... hungry And uh, dr king got up to speak and he was going off his written speech Mahalia Jackson, who was up there on the stage behind him, realized that Dr. King was not really connecting with that audience. She'd heard him speak elsewhere. And uh, she was not real thrilled with this prepared speech. And so she she gave him a little shot from behind and said, Martin, tell him about the dream. And you can see on on tape, on, on film, Lee, uh, that Dr. King basically put his notes away, and and went into his uh, stump speech, and uh, boy, it took off. Uh, he he got down and did what he'd been doing all over the country, and uh, and that was just speaking from his heart, and he knew exactly what to do. And uh, boy, and, and from that point, uh, that crowd was just electrified. And that's what, when, when we go and see video or tape, you know, that's what we see. He, he got into his wheelhouse. He got into his hot spot and, uh, and just blew the roof off. He was something. And then ended up in the White House, and uh, John F. Kennedy uh, was very impressed. He uh, complimented Dr. King and then said to his group, you know, well, he's damn good. <laughs> that's what he
4: said. Yep. Yep. They were.
1: They were. They were all very. And and Kennedy, by the way, was super relieved that there had been no violence. That was the concern. Yep. You know, as this crowd gathered in Washington, a quarter of a million people, uh, they were worried about violence, and and uh, so when it ended peacefully and in, in, in a positive way, uh, Kennedy and his staff were very relieved.
0: And you know, Kennedy knew something about the power of metaphor, and what a communicator he was as well, Pat. So this was no this was oh some boy, high I, compliment coming from JFK.
1: Yeah, the two of them. listen, I love to this day. I love to uh, look at John F. Kennedy communicating, particularly his inaugural address, which may be the most memorable in uh, American history. And uh we'll never forget him as a communicator. No, it, it, it's amazing what what a great leader can do through the skill of his oratory. Uh, Winston Churchill, in fact, years years ago, said of all the talent bestowed upon man, uh, there is nothing more powerful than the gift of oratory. Uh, that was that was Churchill's view, and of course he had that gift. He worked very hard on his verbal skills, and without them, you know, uh, we probably wouldn't uh, remember. Winston Churchill as we do
0: no there's there's no doubt and and Pat I wanted to connect back to that improvisation uh with the I have a dream speech you know I have a I have a dear friend and a pastor who has told me in the last five or six years that he has let the spirit of God move him more in his sermons and he calls it preaching on his feet and he said that you know it's more about God than it is about me and I need to have more space for him and uh just briefly here pat we're going we're going into a break just about thirty seconds on that and then the other side we'll 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 continue
1: well I think your pastor friend uh is right on uh to let God work through you uh, you're you're his voice here on earth and when a pastor or or anyone you know really understands that any communicator uh let god work through you and uh he'll help you he'll give you strength and and, and King, Dr. King did that uh, he was a he was a godly man and uh, the lord spoke through him
0: indeed we're we're talking to Pat Williams as we always do on leadership on the day well Martin Luther King Day which is an important day in this country and one of the great men of this country and when we come back more with Pat Williams this is Lee Habib and this is our American stories As we say so often, no arguing on this network, no political opinion, just stories. And this may be one of the greatest in our country, Martin Luther King's, and that's Reverend Martin Luther King. We're not calling him doctor, not at any time during these two hours.
2: Take, Lord, take my hand Precious Lord And lead me home
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and for two hours, dedicated, as it should, to the life of Reverend Martin Luther King, and you're listening to one of the most beautiful songs ever written, Take My Hand, Precious Lord, and originally written by the Reverend Thomas Dorsey in 1932, and it was Reverend Martin Luther King's favorite song. The song Pat Williams writes about in his book, 21 Great Leaders, that Reverend King requested to be played during a team meeting on that fateful night that he was shot. This version is from the movie Selma. And let's just hear a little bit more of it before we come back with Pat. Mahalia Jackson performed this song at Reverend King's funeral. Pat, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Uh, thank you, Lee.
0: You know, music, I think, is such an integral part of faith. I think it was Chesterton. I could be wrong, but one of the great writers said, when we, when we sing, we pray twice. Talk about this song, Pat, and why you included it in your, on your piece on leadership.
1: Well, it was a a powerful song, and Dr. King, as you pointed out, uh, loved the song. And uh, he requested that it be sung that night in Memphis uh, in 1968. Uh, He had come there to help untangle uh, the garbage union or the garbage collectors' uh, problems that were overwhelming in Memphis, and that's why Dr. King had come to the city And uh, he was going to speak that night. He was very tired. And uh, you get the sense he was also kind of discouraged. But uh, he could get himself up and get himself fired up. And he was getting ready to speak that night uh, when he stood out there on the balcony of his motel. And uh, from across the street in a building, you know, the shot was fired that killed him. Which reminds me, Lee, if you want to... uh, Spend some time in the South and do the Martin Luther King tour. Uh, Boy, I encourage people to do it. I've uh, done it over a period of time, but you you definitely need to uh, uh, study Montgomery, Alabama. That's where he had his first church, and that church is still there, uh, still open, still the same church. Uh, His first home in Montgomery is there. It's a, a historical piece. You can go visit it. You can go visit the uh, the location where uh, Rosa Parks stood, you know, and got on the bus on December 1st, 1955. Uh, close by is Selma, and you can go and walk across that bridge, that famous bridge in Selma, and then come up further north to Birmingham, and downtown Birmingham, my goodness, which was known then as Bombingham, but Birmingham has some wonderful, wonderful museums and uh, the church where the three little girls were killed is there, and uh, so much history in the, in the state of Alabama regarding the civil rights movement and Dr. King. It's uh, To those who love American history, uh, the state of Alabama has so much for you to see. And then, and then uh, you go to Memphis, and they have done an incredible job uh, of reconstructing the room that Dr. King was standing in I mean, you can see the whole thing. You can go across the street and see where the shot was fired. So much history in Memphis in the civil rights period. It's uh, absolutely breathtaking.
0: You know, and talking about that courage, just to give our audience the dimension, Pat, of how tough it was. You know, I went to a great law school, a southern law school, the University of Virginia, and one of my favorite and dear friends, a professor, uh, showed me the most important case to him. And it wasn't just Brown v. Board. The case to him that mattered was the NAACP versus the state of Alabama. And it turned out that folks who were giving the NAACP, many white people, were giving anonymously. And the state of Alabama had called up the NAACP's southern chapter in Alabama, and it wanted the names. And the NAACP said no. And the Alabama state court said yes. And they were going to force it. And it took the U.S. Supreme Court to change that. And this was the real fight. Imagine this, Pat. The state wanted to use the force of its weight to get those names, and we know why they wanted to get those names, because the folks who gave to the NAACP were about to get punished. Talk about that, Pat. What What the? Well, that, what was really going on in these states?
1: Well, Lee, that's, uh, you know, I'm not sure, I'm sure I knew that story. Uh, but boy, oh boy, that, I think what it says uh, is that uh, for many, many decades, countless decades. Uh, it had been uh, two different worlds. Uh, the South was, was absolutely uh, petrified, terrified over what was gonna happen. They could see it coming and uh, they didn't like it. Many, many didn't like it. Go study the life of uh, Bull Connor, you know, the police chief of Birmingham. Yep. Uh, they would They would do whatever they had to you know, to keep two separate races. It's interesting when you go uh, into those southern cities now, and I I don't know the depth of it, but I do know this, that we've had many generations of students who have come along now and have no concept, uh, no awareness really of what it was like uh, back in those days, you know, up, up through the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and Uh, Two different drinking fountains and two different restrooms and two different school districts. I mean, on and on. It was two different worlds. Uh, This generation, fortunately, you know, never really has experienced that and never will. Uh, That's a good thing. I think that's what would please Dr. King.
0: Indeed. I live in Oxford, Mississippi, and we're doing this show from Oxford, Mississippi, of all places, Pat. And I think what, what, what moves my heart more than anything imaginable is that my little girl goes to a public school, which is almost 30% African-American, and there's just not a stitch of race uh, talk or conflict in that school. And as you know, uh, Ole Miss was ground zero uh, for some of that violence you were talking about. And I wanted to talk about some of that violence and the courage, because here we learn the state of Alabama wants names, and we know what will happen. There were cross burnings, there were deaths, there were murders, and King himself was murdered. And he knew it. You could listen in his last speech. So we talk about his rhetoric and his great communication skills and his vision. But my goodness, Pat, the courage, the
1: courage. Yeah, you can't minimize that uh, when you really study the courage of, of, of Dr. King and all of those leaders. I mean, they were they realized that at any point they could be killed uh, for, for their uh, for the for the cause. They could be uh, eliminated. But Dr. King uh, uh, led the marches, and he led them by the way Lee, very slowly. You know, he uh, his his cohorts would tell you uh, that he walked uh, very slowly, uh, very methodically. He was not in a hurry. Uh, so uh, he was a he was an easy target. Yep. Uh, and and uh, but yet uh, he knew he had been called to this, and he he was not going to be deterred. So when we honor him on, in January, on his birthday, he, he earned those honors. When I think of Dr. King, uh, however, Lee, I think of youth. Uh, all that he accomplished, really, in about 13 years, publicly, from age 26 to age 39. Uh, those, were, those were the years. But before his 40th birthday, he was gone. I've often wondered, often thought, if he had lived a full life. Let's say into his 70s or 80s, uh, what uh, what he, what might have happened with him, you bet. and all that he believed in. I've I've often thought about that. What uh, the next 40 years would have brought brought for him.
0: Well, we're going to close out the segment with more about Martin Luther King's courage and leadership. This is Lee Habib, and this is our American story.
3: Yes,
4: In the name of love, one man
2: come and go. One man come, he to justify. One man to.
0: This is Lee Habib, and we're talking about Reverend Martin Luther King for the entire show, and imagine the power of his vision. A young Irishman, Bono, understands the totality of Martin Luther King's vision, and Bono wrote this song in honor not only of Martin Luther King, but of the Lord Martin Luther King served. And it's Bono's Lord, too. He's come back to him in a very clear way over the last decade or so, a lapsed Catholic boy who's now come back to the thing he fought and rebelled against much of his life. And again, we're joined by Pat Williams for the hour, and we're talking about Reverend King. And Pat I wanted to talk about the courage as it relates to the ministry, because when he wrote a letter from a Birmingham jail, he wasn't writing it to the American public, though it did get to the American public, and I think he knew it. He was writing specifically to the pastors in the South who had told him, yes, you're right, Reverend King, you're right, we need to change, but not now. Let's slow down. Talk about that, that incredible piece of work, because I think it's one of the great pieces of writing of the 20th century.
1: It was, and, he, and, and the other amazing thing about it, Lee, he didn't have uh, writing paper. You know, He wrote it on scraps of paper You know, in the jail. Uh, and by the way, when you speak of jail he he spent over forty nights uh, in prison uh arrested you know for what he was doing and and that was not just a publicity act, believe me, you know, his wife was petrified, you know they didn't know what was going to happen to him uh you know those those nights in jail um you know this this was reality and uh Again, we see his courage. But that letter he wrote has become a famous piece of American history, a letter from a Birmingham jail. And uh, Dr. King was a marvelous communicator, you know, as far as his writing as well. And uh, what he shared that day really had a profound influence, a profound effect. So he had skills, and that's another good lesson for us, Lee, Uh, good leaders are good writers you bet you know they've worked hard at developing their writing skills as well as their speaking skills and it all comes down Uh, well let's go back to the first step of leadership it's called vision and and dr. King did have a vision you know one nation under God I mean he really had a vision that's what drove him but then his ability to communicate that vision. Listen, as leaders, we can have the greatest vision in the world if we can't communicate it effectively. If we don't think it's important to communicate it effectively, well, here's what's going to happen to your vision. Nothing. (laughs) I mean, not one thing if you can't communicate it well. And uh, Dr. King's communication skills, that's why that uh, committee, you know, they appointed him over in Montgomery when the whole Rosa Parks thing blew up uh they were prepared you know to uh to uh strike and to shut down the bus lines and and they did you know for uh, for a year and it was finally ruled you know that uh, blacks didn't have to go to the back of the bus it took about a year and Dr King led that that's what really got him going and then then of course the whole movement moved nibly
0: Pat, I want to play you one final clip that you write about in your book, 21 Great Leaders. Again, it's from King's I Have a Dream speech that you were incredibly fortunate to attend. And to you, it showed a critical communications lesson. And speaking with authority.
3: Now is the time. To lift our nation from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time.
0: And that gets back to the point of going slow, now is the time, racial justice and brotherhood. Why that clip, Pat?
1: Well, I think that uh, Dr. King was really saying, we can't wait any longer. Uh, we need action. We, we need a new outlook. We need a new approach here, gang. And uh, that's what he meant. Now is the time. And boy, as you listen to him, his pacing was so good, Lee. Uh, his timing, you know, when he spoke was so good. He he could move an audience. I, I would encourage anyone who's interested in public speaking to study closely t- uh, film and uh, audio tape of the great uh, men who, uh, who spoke so well. Dr. King, John Kennedy, uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, Steve Jobs. Study them. Uh, listen carefully. You can learn so much. Uh, just by uh, studying great speakers, great communicators.
0: No doubt. I also urge people to, when they're listening, have a script nearby and see what you would do with that script. Play with it a little bit. I often will see a piece of uh, script on a written page, Pat. I've done this for political, uh, I periodically will help politicians. And I'll show them a Ronald Reagan speech, and they'll they'll see the number of words and they'll think, wow, that's 10 minutes. And I'll go, no, it's actually 18 minutes. Because going slow is so important. And Reagan used the caesura like nobody's business, Pat. The dramatic pause, letting the audience lean into you, letting them come to you is such an important part of speaking. And uh, King knew this intuitively like a great actor understood it, actually.
1: Yeah, you know, that's well, well phrased. I think the, the greatest strength that any speaker has is, is the pause, the pregnant pause. And we have a tendency to to rush through a talk, but when we pause uh, for even for a second and a half, it seems like thirty minutes. And uh, but 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 people, when you pause, uh, are really really paying attention. You bet. Uh, about what's coming next, and uh, uh, that's that's one of the great strengths that any leader has. Whether you're leading in your home. Or at, at your office, or in other categories, uh, remember to pause. You've got a great, great strength, uh, and we tend to rush a little bit when we're speaking. But uh, work that pause, and the room just goes absolutely silent. Yep. I'm not. You're not pausing for five or ten seconds, although some speakers can do that. But just a little, a little break, and just pause. And the audience, it it becomes riveted. It's amazing how that works.
0: Yeah, and the uh, Point to Hawk speech, which we did, we were going through some Reagan clips a few weeks ago. He says to the, and he's speaking not to the audience. He's speaking to the ghosts of the dead soldiers there because he's facing their tombstones. And he says, what brought you here? What Mm -hmm. brought you here? And then there's a long pause, and he allows the wind to start blowing through the microphone. The audience mm. is leaning in. They're not sure who he's talking to. He's actually using suspense, which is a, so, something he learned from his film years. Um, and he just understood all of, the, all of the tools that great artists understand. And I think Reagan had the soul of an artist. We know Churchill did. He was an artist. Mm. He was a painter. And I deeply believe that King had the soul of an artist. And that's as close as we can get to God Because God was a creator, and we're creators. And it's a remarkable thing. I wanted to get a little bit into one other clip that you write about in the I Have a Dream speech.
3: America has given the Negro people a bad check. A check which has come back marked insufficient funds.
0: And the way he used it, King, simple, direct, straight shots at the human heart. Talk about that.
1: Well, that's another great speaking skill, Lee, and uh, his ability to, to repeat himself you know, with key phrases. Uh, that was another great strength. But I'll tell you what amazes me, Lee, uh, when he gave that speech in Washington, he was uh, 34 years old. Think about that for a minute. Uh, he's leading this great movement across the country, as he has now for at that point for eight years. And uh, I, I think it's a wonderful thing that we continue to remember Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, with such high regard.
0: You bet. And, Pat, thanks so much, as always, for joining us. And uh, we'll be talking soon.
1: Lee, nice to talk to you. Thanks a million.
0: You bet. Thank you. And, folks, remember in this speech he had the Old Testament prophet Amos saying, quote, we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down the waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. And that's where Reverend King got his source of energy in the end. It was from the Bible. It was from God. Not talked enough about when people talk about Dr. King and Reverend King, but talked about here. This is Lee Habib. And this is Our American Stories, the story of the Reverend Martin Luther King. This is Lee Habib, and this is our American Stories, the life of Martin Luther King. In this hour, we wanted to talk about the way the media makes over Martin. And this comes from a column that dropped today in National Review. And that I had written in 2013, and every year NRO publishes this. It's one of only a few columns, actually, that they do that with. So I'm pretty honored. And here's how it begins. And you'll be hearing a lot from Martin, because I quote him intensely and extensively and compare and contrast his speeches with those of Malcolm X. Listen carefully to all the celebrations of Martin Luther King this week. Listen very carefully. There is one aspect of King's life that you won't hear much about, no matter how hard you try. His devotion to his faith, his devotion to his God, his devotion to Jesus Christ. Listen carefully and you'll hear endless mentions of Dr. Martin Luther King, but little if any mention of the Reverend Martin Luther King. Listen carefully to all the video and audio clips and you'll hear some of the greatest rhetoric and some of the most passionate speeches of the 20th century. The sound bites and clips will stir your soul, but you won't hear the references to God that so often filled his speeches, nor will you hear references to the book that inspired him, the Bible. You won't hear references to God because the secular secular media dislikes the Bible so much and public affirmations of a belief in Christ that they do everything in their power to redact them. The Reverend Martin Luther King loved the Bible so much that he got an undergraduate degree in Bible studies. At modern universities, they call it a divinity degree. His Ph.D. was in theology. To King, the Bible wasn't some strange old book that didn't have relevance in modern times. It was God's Word. It was a book that was and always will be, relevant because it expresses eternal principles and eternal truths. And you know how much the media hates talking about ideas like eternity, or principle, or that really awful word, truth. In a version of his famous Knock at Midnight speech, which you are unlikely to hear in the media this week, you're going to hear it here. King started with a quote from one of his great speeches, from Luke chapter 11, verses 5 and 6.
4: And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend? And shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey is come to me, and I have nothing to set before him.
0: Listen to his tenor and tone. This sounds more like a sermon you'd get on a Sunday. And it was. Why start a speech about the problems of the 20th century with a parable from an ancient text? Well, Reverend King explains why.
4: Now this is a parable dealing with the power of persistent prayer. Amen. And as I look at this parable, I see within it a basic outline and a basic guide in dealing with many of the problems that we confront in our nation and in the world today and the role of the church. Now the first thing that we notice in this parable is that it is midnight. It is also midnight in our world today. And we are experiencing a darkness so deep that we can hardly see which way to turn its midnight.
0: He goes on then in this speech to talk about the limits of psychology to help us in this struggle at midnight.
4: People are more worried, more frustrated, more bewildered today than at any period of human history. What are the popular books, the bestsellers in religion today? They are books entitled "Peace of Mind," "Peace of Soul," and who are the popular preachers? They are so often preachers who would preach nice little soothing sermons on how to be happy, how to relax, how to keep your blood pressure down. And so we have retranslated the gospel to read, "Go ye into all the world." And keep your blood pressure down, and lo, I will make you a well-adjusted personality. All of this is indicative of the fact that it is midnight in the psychological order.
0: It is midnight in the psychological order, and King believes there's only one thing that can cure that, and that's a spiritual cure for those things that beleaguer us in the material world. And this was King's Essence. And this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, you're going to hear from King more from this great speech and another. You'll also hear from a young Malcolm X, because these two great men were competing for the soul of the nation, one a Christian voice of tolerance and love, and the other... A radical Islamic voice of hate and anger and in the end war this is Lee Habib and more with the story of the Reverend Martin Luther King here on our American stories
2: The gold sky
3: and the sweet
2: silver song of walk walk on through the
0: wind. Walk on This is Lee Habib. Elvis's love of gospel. Well, watch the documentary on it. It comes on PBS now and then. After his concerts, he'd go downstairs with his guys, go around a piano and play, as he called it, the music he really loved. By the way, he always performed it in public, too. And we're celebrating the life of Dr. Martin Luther King and the universal appeal of his Christian faith Well, we were just commenting during the break that, my goodness, it was so beautiful and so, so inspiring that young white Jewish kids from the North marched down in the South with them, and some, it cost them their lives. But Martin's faith inspired that kind of courage in people, even people who didn't believe as he believed. And for the hour, we're going to talk about how the media just doesn't bring so much of Reverend King's faith to light, and that's what we're doing here because, my goodness, it animated everything he did. And so we're covering his famous knock-at-midnight speech, which everyone should listen to and hear. It's one of the great sermons, I think, of all time, and one of the great pieces of theological thinking. So toward the middle of the speech, we had just heard King talk about the limits of psychology. And this is where God has to come in. King then goes on to condemn moral relativism.
4: Midnight is a time when all moral values lose their distinctiveness. so in our world today, for so many people, there's nothing absolutely right, nothing absolutely wrong. Nobody is concerned about obeying the Ten Commandments in so many instances. They are not important. Everybody is busy trying to obey the 11th commandment. Thou shall not get caught. (laughs) This tragic moral laxity, this tendency to be caught up in the chains of conformity is destroying the soul
0: our so why don't the media showcase this dimension of King, you might be wondering? Or this clip? We found it. They can't? Well, after all, his commitment to equality and his commitment to social justice were driven by the same spirit, the Holy Spirit. Why don't we see or hear the video clips of his religious speeches, even though they are easy to find, thanks to YouTube. And that's where we found this one. You don't think producers at ABC, CBS, and NBC News could find this? We know why. Because secular liberals love to secularize the sacred. They love to remove King's source of inspiration, his love for God, and reduce it to something more earthly. Such as his desire for social justice. But whose justice is the question? His own, the government's, the Supreme Court's? No. Always it was God's. Don't trust me on this one. In what may be the most beautiful document written in the 20th century, a letter from a Birmingham jail, King identified his source of inspiration. And we had somebody do a dramatic reading of this, because I think it's one of the most beautiful pieces of writing in the 20th century. Pick it up and read it sometime. But take a listen to our guy do a reading from this remarkable pamphlet.
3: We will win our freedom, because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of God are embodied in our echoing demands.
0: King was in jail when he wrote that because he believed that the law of man had created segregation, and that law was unjust. In jail, he had addressed why, as a man of God, he felt compelled to break the law to change it.
3: How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law.
0: So here was King imposing his view of morality through his faith onto the legislative body. Today you would hear never ending cries of separation of church and state. What a stupid and silly and narrow version of what that all means. King spoke with great clarity in this essay. He was fearless, he was faithful, and that's what made him so dangerous, not only to segregationists but to racists everywhere. And that's why, by the way, totalitarians always get rid of God first. King also invoked God's mercy in his speeches. And nonviolence was always his methodology. Not everyone agreed, though, with King's approach back in the early 1960s. A young Muslim named Malcolm X had a different vision for black America. Malcolm X was a member of the Nation of Islam and a follower of its leader, Elijah Muhammad. Like King... Malcolm X was a brilliant orator, but he had little tolerance for King's Christian emphasis of nonviolence, especially the whole part about loving our enemies and the whole part about loving the same white people who had mistreated so many black people in our country. Indeed, Malcolm X thought King was weak and his message feeble. On more than one occasion, he publicly accused King of being an Uncle Tom, a tool of the white establishment. In Malcolm X's message to the grassroots in Detroit in 1963... He described the role of this Uncle Tom.
3: The same old slave master today has Negroes who are nothing but modern Uncle Toms, 20th century Uncle Toms, to keep you and me in check, keep us under control, keep us passive and peaceful and nonviolent. That's Tom making you nonviolent.
0: And Tom was Reverend King. This was a direct attack. Malcolm X wasn't just attacking King, though. He was mocking him. In the same Detroit speech, he decried King's Christian nonviolence.
3: A revolution is bloody. Revolution is hostile. Revolution knows no compromise. Revolution overturns and destroys everything that gets in its way. And you sitting around here like a knot on the wall saying I'm going to love these folks no matter how much they hate me. No, you need a revolution.
0: Two competing visions, folks. One Christian love, another, well, let's face it. This was the Nation of Islam's hate creed. Malcolm X thought all of the hymns, all of the prayers, all of the hand holding, all that churchiness, it was just plain silly.
3: Who ever heard of a revolution where they lock arms singing, We Shall Overcome? <laughs> just tell me you don't do that in a revolution. You don't do any singing, you're too busy swinging.
0: Leadership matters, folks. Philosophy matters. So imagine being a young black man in the 1960s and hearing these two appeals. This was the fight. By the way, no one's doing this story today here on Martin Luther King's Day. Nobody's doing this. So thanks for listening. Thanks to my great team for pulling this all together. Luckily for America, King's Christian impulse prevailed. Now you won't hear any of this on TV or the radio Anytime, today, or this week, the media will simply ignore all this yucky, messy God talk and all the icky Jesus talk. And you won't hear the secular left invoke the separation of church and state when it comes to King's legacy. You will never hear the secular left complain that King used the power of his pulpit and the power of his faith to change the culture and indeed change the law. When many of us wonder as we approach the national holiday in his honor is this. What would King have to say about our current problems? What would he have to say about fatherlessness in the African-American community? Heck, in our whole country. What would he have to say about crime, drug abuse, the culture? What would he have to say about abortion? These are things to think about. And again, you heard what he was up against. It wasn't just the white folks going after him and the segregationists. It was black folks competing for the soul of African Americans across this country, Malcolm X in particular. We know what he would have said about the economy, by the way. King was a social justice liberal, and he cared passionately about the poor. When we come back, we're going to spend a little time talking about that and what Christians are implored to do by God with their money. And the question is, do we give it to the government to redistribute, or do we give it ourselves, give it to our churches and the churches redistribute that money? A big question, a big philosophical question we Christians grapple with every day. This is Lee Habib, this is Our American Stories for the hour, Martin Luther King, the secularization of the sacred, and that's Reverend King. We will not call him Dr. King this hour. This is Lee Habib, and you're listening to Johnny Cash singing the most recorded song in world history. I love this song when I was an atheist, and I love this song as a Christian, because the message is just so damn stirring and beautiful. We're talking about the life of Martin Luther King, and that's Reverend King for the hour, not Dr. And again, he had a doctorate in divinity studies. So this man lived for the Bible, and the Bible was the source of his inspiration. It was the source of his courage. And without the Bible, there is no Martin Luther King. And the media is not telling you that, and they don't want to tell you that, and that's why we are. And we were talking about that social justice part of Dr. King, and how not all Americans, and particularly not all Christians, see eye to eye on how best to deal with the vexing issues of poverty. But I think time has taught us a lot. And it would have been fascinating to hear and see what Dr. King would think about the trillions we've spent and the way we've spent it to help poor people. And whether it's actually helped or perhaps hurt. Because it separated the church from the giving. It sent it to a bureaucrat, and the bureaucrat gave it. I think the biggest question would be, what would King have learned from European socialism? and its effect on churches throughout that continent. You know, Dennis Prager, one of, my, one of the great sources of wisdom for me and one of my mentors, once said something fabulous, and he's Jewish, but we see so eye to eye on almost everything. And he said, the bigger the government, the smaller the church, and the smaller the synagogue. Would King see the folly of the great society, or, like so many modern progressives, would he double down on the commitment to bigger government and redistributionist policies. I'm not here to give you the answers. Just answer a couple ask a couple of questions. Whatever your opinions on the matter, say this about Reverend King. He cared deeply for the poor. He was there. He showed up. He was in the streets fighting for the poor every day until his last. And let's talk about that last day. On april third, nineteen sixty eight, and we're broadcasting from Oxford, Mississippi, not far from Memphis. An hour's drive. The night before his assassination, King gave a speech at the Mason Temple in Memphis, then the Church of God headquarters. He was there to support black sanitation workers who had been on strike since March 12th for higher wages and better treatment. In one one incident that spurred the strike, Black Street repairmen received pay for two hours when they were sent home because of bad weather, but white employees received a full day's pay. In a speech entitled, I've Been to the Mountaintop, that night before he died, he made at least a dozen references to the Bible, and toward the end he spoke of the end of his own life, as if he knew it may be ending shortly.
3: Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land.
0: Imagine that. Like anybody, he said, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I am not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. The audience roared as you heard. They could not know that their hero would be gunned down the very next day at the Lorraine Hotel in downtown Memphis. And though King had a sense of foreboding, he was not despondent because he knew he was doing the Lord's work. Here were the final words of his very final public speech.
3: So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord.
0: You know, I'd heard Bono in an interview talk about that speech. And then he really started to dig into King's work. And out of it came, as you heard in the last hour, his greatest song, In the Name of Love, which he wrote not only for Dr. King, but it started to reconnect Bono. To God, too. As a young boy growing up in Ireland, he had seen Protestants and Catholics kill each other, and he just didn't get it, and he ran away from faith. And the rest of his life, think about the music. I still haven't found what I'm looking for, the streets with no name. What is every single song he's writing about? God and his struggle to get back to him. So listen carefully to the stories of Martin Luther King this week, folks. Listen very carefully. The man who so loved God, who so feared God's judgment, will be stripped of that animating spirit by a fiercely secular media. But it was God and King's desire to serve him that changed this country forever. No amount of revisionist history by anybody can change that. That's what drives totalitarians crazy and secularists. They believe no God shall become before theirs, even if his name is the state. And that's what really drives liberals crazy about Jesus Christ followers. His followers believe he is the answer to their problems, not the government. As King said, Jesus lives, Jesus saves. As King said that night in Memphis, a few hours before his death.
3: We are going on. We need all of you. You know what's beautiful to me is to see all of these Ministers of the Gospel. It's a marvelous picture. Who is it that is supposed to articulate the longings and aspirations of the people more than the preacher? Somehow the preacher must have a kind of fire shut up in his bones. And whenever injustice is around, he must tell it. Somehow the preacher must be an Amos. He said, when God speaks, who can but prophesy? Again with Amos, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Somehow the preacher must say with Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And he's anointed me to deal with the problems of the poor.
0: Indeed. And by the way, you could substitute preacher for rabbi. And as anyone who is involved in the Jewish faith knows, the importance of a rabbi in the, not just the synagogue but in the town is paramount. And always the rabbi is the person you run to to seek for, seek for and, and receive wisdom. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and for the hour, The Life of Martin Luther King, this day in history also, brought to you by our friends at Hillsdale College. And my goodness, you want to learn about the American canon, the Western canon, everything from Plato and Aristotle, to the Bible, to the Founders' Vision, Locke, Montesquieu, straight up to current events. There's no better college in America to send your boy or girl. And by the way, if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. Their online courses are the best. Their C.S. Lewis course was amazing. And of course, Economics 101, you just can't miss it. They're all available. Go to hillsdale.edu and learn more. When we come back, more on the Reverend Martin Luther King on this day in history and on the day we celebrate the life of Dr. King as a nation. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and for the hour, for the day, the life of Reverend Martin Luther King being celebrated here, and you were listening to Alicia Keys, one of the great young artists, young R&B artists, going back to her gospel roots and singing one of her favorite songs, and we play that today in honor of King. I wanted now to dig into a, another speech, this one, a sermon in a church in Chicago on the 17th of August, 1967, Why Jesus Called a Man a Fool. I wanted to play it because what I think what you're going to find interesting is the audio we could find and the audio we couldn't. We searched everywhere, and there were remarkable parts of this speech that were redacted. And so you're going to hear the parts that we could find, and I'm going to read you the rest and leave it to you to think about why we couldn't find the audio on this. So let's start with the beginning of this sermon. And again, that's why we're here today to honor Dr. King with words from him you are not hearing anywhere else in this country. Anywhere. Let's start.
3: I want to share with you a dramatic Little story from the Gospel as recorded by Saint Luke. It is the story of a man who, by all standards of measurement, would be considered a highly successful man. Yet Jesus called him a fool. If you will read that parable, you will discover that the central character in the drama is a certain rich man. This man was so rich that his farm yielded tremendous crops. In fact, the crops were so great that he didn't know what to do. And it occurred to him that he had only one alternative, and that was to Build some new and bigger barns so he could store all of his crops. This recording is briefly interrupted at this point. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. That brother thought that was the end of life.
0: So he was telling the story of this rich man who thought just eat, drink, and be merry. More. That's the end of life. A story that still resonates, don't you think? But let me now read what we couldn't find. Now Jesus didn't call the man a fool because he made money in a dishonest fashion. There is nothing in that parable to indicate that this man was dishonest And then he made his money through conniving or exploitation. In fact, it seems to reveal that he had a medium of humanity and that he was a very industrious man. He was a thrifty man, apparently a very hard worker. So Jesus didn't call him a fool because he got his money through dishonest means. And there is nothing here to indicate that Jesus called this man a fool because he was rich. Jesus never made a universal indictment against wealth. It's true that one day a rich young ruler came to him raising some questions about eternal life, and Jesus said to him, sell all. But in that case, Jesus was prescribing individual surgery and not setting forth a universal diagnosis. Why was that cut? Again, I'll leave that to you to think about and ponder. The next clip from this speech...
3: Take a listen. He didn't make contributions to civil rights. Yeah. He looked at suffering humanity and was concerned about it.
0: He didn't make contributions to civil rights. He looked at suffering humanity and was concerned about it. Let me tell you the part we couldn't find. It's the part that preceded that line. Somehow in life, we must know that we must seek first the kingdom of God. And then all of those other things, clothes, houses, cars will be added unto us. But the problem is all too many people fail to put first things first. They don't keep a sharp line of demarcation between the things of life and the ends of life. And so this man was a fool because he allowed the means by which he lived to outdistance the ends for which he lived. He was a fool because he maximized the minimum and minimized the maximum. This man was a fool because he allowed his technology to outdistance his theology. This man was a fool because he allowed his mentality to outrun his morality. Somehow he became so involved in the means by which he lived that he couldn't deal with the way to eternal matters. Stripped. Couldn't find it. Again, you think about why. Let's play another part of this sermon.
3: Finally, this man was a fool because he failed to realize his dependence on God.
1: (laughs) Do you know that man talked
3: like he regulated the seasons? That man talked like he gave the rain to grapple with the fertility of the soil. That man talked like he provided the do. He was a fool because he ended up acting like he was the creator instead of a creature. This man's centered foolishness is still alive today.
0: And then again, this part was redacted. In fact, he said, it has gotten to the point today that some are even saying that God is dead. The thing that bothers me about it is that they didn't give me full information because at least I would have wanted to attend God's funeral. And today I want to ask, who was the coroner that pronounced him dead? I want to raise a question. How long had he been sick? I want to know whether he'd had a heart attack or died of chronic cancer. These questions haven't been answered for me and I am going on believing and knowing that God is alive. You see, as long as love is around, God is alive. As long as justice is around, God is alive. There are certain conceptions of God that needed to die, but not God. You see, God is the supreme noun of life. He's not an adjective. He is the supreme subject of life. He's not a verb. He's the supreme independent clause. He's not a dependent clause. Everything else is dependent on him. But he is dependent on nothing. My goodness. This is the stuff we should all be talking about every day. Christian or not. Jew or Gentile. And so as we close out this hour, I want to play a little bit and the end of Martin Luther King's great speech to the nation and his march on Washington's. Now you'll come to appreciate this very secular speech coming from this man of faith. And you'll come now to listen to it knowing from whom it came and from where it came, from God. Martin Luther King, simply a vassal, a pathway. He knew it, now you know it.
3: From every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. And when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free
2: at last.
0: And my goodness, it can make you cry, knowing now what we know about the man, knowing now what we know about him knowing he was more than likely not going to make it to the age of 40. And he didn't, but he still lives with us. On this day in history, and on the day that we're honoring the Reverend Martin Luther King, we were happy to bring you his own words from his own sermons and the source of everything. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
2: Stop me, shake me in my mind so Prove to me that he's the Lord Show me, show me your sign. sign What kind of sign they need When it all comes from within Hey, When the loss has been found What's to come has already been So I tell you that I'm pressing on Ah, uh-huh.